really good to have the instrumentalists back with us. Adds a fullness and a richness to the uh, music of worship. We appreciate their hard work. Saturday morning rehearsals come and they get ready to aid us in the expression of our worship to our great God. So we really appreciate their efforts and look forward to uh, look forward to a great year, huh? Let me begin this morning with a question for you. Kind of get your thinking caps on with me. The question is, is does God still speak today? Does God still speak today? That's a, it's a question of considerable importance. And if He does speak today, how does He speak? Is He continuing to give new and fresh revelation to His people Or when the New Testament was completed, did God stop speaking to His people in the form of additional revelation? New words from Him. Do we have everything that God intends for us to have? Or is He continuing to supplement it with new and fresh revelation? New words from God. These questions are almost as old as the church itself, and they are of considerable importance. In the middle of the second century A.D., the church was confronted with these questions when out of nowhere there exploded upon the scene a, a new movement, the inherents of which called it New Revelation. Their opponents called it Montanism. Montanus, for whom it is named, was a former pagan priest who lived, grew up and lived in the area of Phrygia in Asia Minor. Asia Minor, as I'm sure you probably know, is modern-day Turkey. The region of Phrygia is the region inhabited by the very churches of Revelation that we have been addressing these last couple of months. This former pagan priest converted to Christianity, but he insisted that God was continuing to speak to His people beyond and outside of the written word of the apostles. In fact, he referred to himself as the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. And he accused the various church leaders of that region of, quote, chasing the Holy Spirit into a book, close quote, by trying to limit divine inspiration to the apostolic writings. He said they had chased the Holy Spirit into a book. He was accompanied by two female prophetesses who, after leaving their husbands, joined with him and the movement, and the trio went about the area of Phrygia and into the various churches, and they claimed to speak new revelation from God via trance and ecstasy. They often referred to themselves in the first person as they spoke, claiming in that first person as if God the Holy Spirit were speaking through their very mouths, and so they would take that first person and say, God, I am, you know, I am saying to you this or that or the other thing. Considering this the ongoing revelation of God for His people. 
They referred to themselves and their followers as spiritual Christians and those that opposed them as carnal Christians. Doctrinally, they were very ascetic in their practices. They practiced very severe fastings. They prohibited all second marriages and they looked rather uh, with a frown upon even a first marriage. They considered it nothing but a concession on the part of God for the sensual nature of man. In A.D. 230, Montanism was declared schismatic and it was excommunicated from the church. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. That's page 1226 in your pew Bibles. We are continuing with our exploration here of the seven churches of Revelation, looking here at the fourth church, beginning in verse 18, the church at Thyatira, a church that was being troubled by this question of new revelation, ongoing revelation, God's speaking to them. Jesus wrote or dictated these letters, I should say, to the Apostle John. He wrote them and sent them to these seven churches. And this church here at Thyatira, you'll remember from last week, we said was a very insignificant church. There was nothing of a political or social or even religious nature that would set this congregation apart or yea, even this city apart in any significant way. There were very common church. The most pressing feature that this church dealt with was the pressure to join the trade guilds that dominated the area surrounding the city of Thyatira. It was, a, it was an area of relative wealth and prosperity due to its manufacturing and distribution businesses. And just like labor unions are very much a part of the modern manufacturing movement, so in their day were trade unions. And you needed to be part of a trade union in order to actively participate in the social economic activities of the community. The problem was that these trade guilds were all devoted to various pagan idols. And there were certain mandatory feasts that by belonging to the trade guild you must show up at and as part of these feast devoted to the dedicated to the idol that was supposedly providing the prosperity of the various trade guild would be the issues of meat offered to idols participating in the sacrificial feasts and the resultant immorality that often followed such activities furthermore the church was troubled because within it there was this well-known female prophetess so-called of which the church leadership was very much aware and apparently unwilling to do anything with, who was actively teaching the people that the Word of God, the written Word of God, was to be superseded by her ongoing revelations. That God was speaking through her and what had been spoken and written in the past was now to be corrected, to be superseded, to be overcome by that which was now being currently spoken through her. 
The church was in a quandary. Do we listen to the Word of God? Do we remain fixed on the anchor of the Word of God? Or do we follow this new teaching, this new revelation? Unfortunately, many in the church had succumbed to this and the leadership of the church itself was unwilling to deal with it. Look at the text beginning in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and His feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron and as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Has God spoken fully and finally in His written Word? Or is it subject to ongoing correction, modification, further revelation? It was the huge issue for this church. It is indeed, I think, the issue for all churches of all times and certainly for the church today. This so-called prophetess Jezebel, verse 20, calling herself a prophetess. So we said last time, Jezebel, we don't believe, was her real name. It was the name Christ applied to her, drawing forward from the Old Testament, 1 Kings 16 and onward, the wickedness of that evil woman Jezebel. And her attempt, nearly successful attempt, to crush the worship of the true God in the northern kingdoms. What will we do? Will we fasten ourselves firmly to the written Word of God? Or will we be tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine? Beloved, years before, the apostles had addressed the issue of meat offered to idols and the participation in sexual immorality. The church was instructed in such things. This was not something up for grab. This was not new territory in which they needed to find their way through the maze. 
Years, decades before they had been informed. Nearly 50 years before they had been told. Let me remind you from Acts 15, verses 28 and 29, of a letter written springing out of the council at Jerusalem. The apostles and brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, who were from the Gentiles, greetings. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. That you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. It's not an open issue. If you are firmly planted in the word of the apostles, if you accept their authority over you as the spokesman of Jesus Christ, then the issue of meat offered to idols and resultant immorality is an open and closed case. But once you put it up for grabs, once the word of God is now an open book subject to further revelation and amendment, then maybe that was for then. Maybe God's saying something different today. The issue here for this church is they have to make a choice. They have got to make a choice. Where will they land? Is it with the Word of the Apostles or is it with the Word of this woman, Jezebel? Will they walk in righteousness or will they walk in Wickedness. This is not a new concept, by the, way. by the way, unique to the church at Thyatira, right? There are only two ways, two paths. The psalmist says in Psalm 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Joshua said to the people at the end of the book of Joshua, as he is passing from the scene, he gathers the tribes together before him. And in Joshua 24 and in verse 15, he presents them with these two paths. And he, he calls them to a decision. He says, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We must decide. The church at Thyatira had to decide. The leadership of the church at Thyatira had to make a decision. It cannot be both ways. God has either finished speaking 
or he is continuing to speak. It cannot be both. Choose for yourself. Choose for yourself. Look at this church last week. We got through the first three of those five facets of Christ's examination, right? We looked last week at the command and the commendation and the condemnation, taking us through verse 21. Now we are going to continue this morning in verses 22 and 23 with the correction. The correction. We need to know what it means or, or, or be able to discern for what makes for a good church. The message to the church at Thyatira helps us do that. Look at verse 22. We notice, back up to verse 21. Last time we, we noted the fact that it says, past tense, I gave her time to repent, right? She does not want to repent of her immorality. This is an unrepentant woman. I believe that when it says, I gave her time to repent, that Jesus is saying He gave her time through the ministry of the Apostle John Himself. The last living apostle who had an active ministry in this particular area of the world prior to being exiled to Patmos. He confronted her in the past and she would not repent and she still will not repent. She is hardened in her unrepentance. She has refused all offers to turn from her sin. And so now notice verse 22, what Jesus says, Behold, I will cast her upon a bed. There's a present tense verb here, translating literally, I cast. It's called a futuristic present if you are interested in such grammatical things. I point that out to you only to, to say this to you, that the, the use of the futuristic present the point of it all is that although the activity has not yet happened, it is so certain to happen that it can be spoken of in a present tense. It doesn't need a future verb. It uses a present verb. This woman, its judgment is so certain as if it's happening right now. Right now. Jesus indicates to her that He will punish her severely. She is now beyond hope. Let me ask you a question. When does an event become a reality? When does an event become a reality? Is it when God decrees it to happen? Or when it occurs in space and time? Interesting thought, isn't it? The use of the futuristic present... We are he's communicating to us here that this isn't a decreed event in the mind of God. The certainty of this event happening, although it has not yet transpired in space and time, it is as if it is happening. I was reading this morning, catching up on my uh, through the Bible reading that I missed last night, and I was reading in Daniel two, and there in Daniel two. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had that rather bizarre dream and he was going to uh, test his 
his uh, soothsayers, he put them to the ultimate test. He said, you tell me what the dream is and its interpretation, and then I'll believe your interpretation. And they said, what are you, crazy? Nobody tells you what the dream is. You've got to at least tell us the dream, then we'll tell you what it means. And he said, I will you know, bust your houses down and impale you on a pole or whatever it was he was going to do to them if they don't tell him the dream and the interpretation. You remember this, right? They're all to be executed except for Daniel, by the grace of God, comes forward, tells the dream and the interpretation. It's the statue, remember, right? The head of gold, the, the um, torso of silver, and then the bronze uh, thighs and the iron uh, legs and the toes mixed of clay and iron. Let me ask you a question. When was the reality of those four world kingdoms is it only in space and time when first Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, and then Rome? And then the resurgent Rome? Or is the certainty of it the moment when it is part of the eternal decree of God and He gives it in a vision? Is God just a good guesser about the future? Or does God know the future because in some way far greater than anything we can understand, He indeed orchestrates all things to the praise of His glory. Look at verse 22. Behold, I cast her upon a bed. This woman's judgment is secure. It is secure. And I want you to hold on to that thought because in a few minutes I'm going to show you how that judgment is working itself out. But beyond that, it's just not her. It's those who commit adultery with her. Do you see it? Verse 22. They are to be cast into great tribulation. There are some in the church and they are still not lost causes. They are going to go with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. You see that? In verse 22. There's still a, condi a conditional nature going on here. There is hope still for them. They, they, the, the coffin has not been nailed shut for them. It is still slightly ajar for them. They are struggling through the issue of loyalty. Will they be loyal to Christ and His Word or are they going to continue to follow after her? They are threatened with a severe punishment. Look at it, verse 22. Great tribulation, it says. Unless, unless they repent of her deeds. She's beyond hope. There is still something of a piece of hope for them. Now, what is the punishment that's being threatened upon them and confirmed upon her. Verse 22, I cast her upon a bed, it says, of sickness. The New American Standard inserts there in italics, telling you that that is the interpretive decision of the translation committee, not part of the original text. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. What we've got going on here, by the way, is, is what's called a Hebrew parallelism. What that means is that her punishment and their punishment 
are parallel to each other. They are, they are two different terms to express the same thought. What she gets and what they are threatened with is the same thing. She doesn't get one punishment and they get a different one. They are both threatened with the same punishment. It is called a bed and it is called great tribulation. They are both being threatened with the same thing. As I pointed out to you where it says a bed of sickness is an interpretive decision. Literally in the text it tells us it's a bed, but it doesn't tell us what kind of a bed. Some commentators think it's a, a funeral beer. That means that, that they're talking about uh, she's going to kill them. Others think it is, a, as it says here, a, a bed implying sickness. Some sort of bed of sickness that she is going to be thrust into. And both of those interpretations have some measure of scriptural support. But I think there's a better understanding. So let me try this one on you and you are going to have to fasten on your thinking caps this morning, all right? If you will hang with me, I will take you on a journey. It seems to me contextually contextually in the context of this letter, this book that what is being threatened here, the parallel judgments, right? Great tribulation and a bed is the devastating destruction of the Great Tribulation. That which is spelled out in this book from chapters 4 through 19. I think what Christ is saying here to this woman is, Behold, I cast you upon a bed of suffering. A bed of suffering. And those who commit adultery with her or with you into great tribulation. By the way, if you were just write this down, we won't go there for the interest of time. But chapter 7, verse 14, there is a reference to great, the great tribulation, which is the title that we apply to that seven year period of time outlined for us in this book beginning over in chapter 4 and following, right? It's the time of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls in which suffering and devastation is poured out on the wicked. Go with me to the end of the book of Revelation all the way to chapter 22 and let me show you why I, the more I have thought about this, the more I have begun to trace this notion, the more persuaded I have become that this is indeed what is being Threatened here. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 18. There is the end of the book, right? It's been now all spelled out for them. Let me, let me try to illustrate this maybe. I'll stop here and illustrate this. The book of Revelation is like a movie. It's like a movie. Some have tried to make it into movies. But verses 4 through 19 is a, is a technicolor vision and movie of what the end is going to be like. What it's going to be like. 
We don't believe the church is going to be on earth to experience that, right? For many theological reasons that we're not going to develop this morning, we believe the church will be raptured or taken from the earth and will not go through this living hell. But we are also persuaded that the book is for the church. Chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters addressed to whom? The church, and not just a historical church, right? But churches. Us. Why do we need to know what living hell is going to occupy this earth? Is it just to satisfy our curiosity? Daniel chapter 4. Daniel's prophecy. Daniel comes to the king. The king has been disturbed in a vision. You remember this? Anybody been reading Daniel lately besides me? He's disturbed by a vision that he's had. And Dan, he tells Daniel, he relates it to Daniel. It's about a tree, you remember? That's chopped down and then banded with iron. And Daniel gives him the understanding of that. He, he, he plays the movie in front of him. And he says, what is the tree is you. And you're going to be chopped down. And you're going to be driven from the face of mankind. And you're going to, for seven periods of time, for seven years, you're going to undergo this awful, terrible time. But you... God will restore you to your kingdom in the end because you refuse to humble your heart before God. Daniel gave Nebuchadnezzar a movie of the end. With certainty, that was what was going to happen. Revelation 4-19 is a, is a movie of the end. It is what is going to happen. The big question will be is, are you going to be there in it? Or not? Are you going, to, you going to be in that movie or not? Verse 18, chapter 22. I testify, I believe these are the words of Jesus Christ, by the way, here in verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Let that sink in for a moment. Hear the words of this prophecy. This final word from my apostle. John, the last living apostle. His last written communication under inspiration to the church. If anyone adds to this, God will add to him the bed of suffering that is vividly portrayed in this book. John is shutting off all further prophetic activity. He has just closed the door on it. Turn back to the left to uh, 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter four, John says, by the way, written about maybe five years before this, before Revelation. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from who? From God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are many deceivers that are out there. Seeking to 
to misrepresent themselves as if they have some new word from God. Test them. How do you test the spirits? You test them against the written word of God. How are the Old Testament saints to test the false or the prophets of their day to see whether they came from God or they didn't? They were to compare them to the written revelation of God. John is saying at the end of this book of Revelation in chapter 22, he's saying further prophetic activity is done. God is done speaking. And if someone comes along and wants to amend what he has said, they God will add to them. God will punish them in the sense that they will now receive the awful suffering that is vividly laid out like a a technical emotion picture for you in chapters 4 through 19. You want to add to the Word of God? This is what you will receive. This is what you will receive. How certain is that? It's absolutely certain. Go back to chapter 2 again. Behold, I cast her upon the bed suffering. Those that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. The very same term that a couple chapters later John applies to this whole period of time. When do these judgments come? When will Jezebel get... For punishment. Well, according to the text here, it comes the return of Christ. Right? As you follow through the rest of the book, chapters 4 through 19, they come at the return of Christ in that period of great tribulation. They're related to that return of Christ. Look down at verse 25, by the way. Let me just kind of continue to develop this idea a little. I know that you're, you're mentally scratching your head. And that's okay. You just keep hanging on here. Notice what he says to those who are faithful in Thyatira. Do you see it? Verse 25. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast. How long? Until I come. Until I come. He's telling the church at Thyatira, you hold on until I get back. He's telling those that are walking in the path of wickedness, you are going to get the suffering detailed in this book when I return. Well, how can a threat of judgment that is dependent upon the return of Jesus Christ be a credible judgment to the people of the first century when you and I know by virtue of our position 19 centuries later that it didn't happen. Jesus did not come back in their lifetime, right? He did not give her the judgments of the tribulation. Those that refused to repent did not receive the great tribulation that had been threatened upon them there. So how do you tie all this together? Well, that thrusts us right into the middle of the doctrine of eminence. The doctrine of eminence. I-M-M-I-N-E-N-C-E. The doctrine of eminence. 
The English word eminent comes from a Latin verb which means to overhang or to project. The English word eminence thus carries the idea of hanging over one's head, ready to overtake someone close at hand. Close at hand. An eminent event is an event that is close at hand in the sense that it can overtake you at any time. It can overtake you at any time. Other things may happen first, but nothing must happen first before the eminent event to occur. Eminent does not mean shortly. Eminent does not mean shortly because shortly implies a period of time. And within the understanding of the concept of the word eminence, there is no relation to time. An eminent event is not an event that is contingent upon time. It is an event that merely is hanging over you like the sword of Damocles and it could fall on you at any moment. Any moment. We believe in the doctrine of eminence. At least if we believe what the Bible says, we believe in the doctrine of eminence. Because this doctrine is all through the New Testament. All over it. Art read a passage for us this morning. 1 Thessalonians. Let me remind you, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He's talking about the pagans at Thessalonica who had repented and trusted Jesus Christ. And he says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We are looking for the blessed hope. James chapter 5, verses 7 and through 9. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and latter rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. But behold, the judge is standing where? Right at the door. The judge is standing right at the door. That is the concept of eminence. First John chapter 2, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Why should we abide in Jesus Christ? Because He is coming. And when He appears, we do not want to shrink away in shame. This is but a few verses of the the manifest witness of the New Testament. The understanding of the New Testament apostles was that the return of Jesus Christ was absolutely eminent. It was hanging over them. It was at hand. It It could occur at any moment in time. Its reality was certain. Every area of theology 
is mysterious. Incomprehensible. Because the study of theology is the study of our great God. And the finite cannot encompass the infinite. Wherever you go in your pursuit of the knowledge of God, you will only go so far and you will bump against a wall of mystery. The doctrine of eminence is no different. From God's perspective, the date of the return of Jesus Christ is absolutely fixed. Absolutely fixed. Acts chapter 1, verse 7, He said to them, Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. God is not in heaven sitting on the edge, biting on His proverbial fingernails and wondering, do I send Him now? You know, like some football coach trying to figure out whether to send a substitute player or not. Jesus Christ will return according to the fixed plan of God. But from a human perspective, it could occur at any time. At any time. And so therefore, the consistent testimony of the Scripture is, for those who are walking in the path of righteousness, it is our blessed hope. It is the, the place that we need to be looking for the return and the reward that accompanies it. You are to expect it. And for the wicked and unrepentant, it's to be a source of dread. Dread. The unbelieving are to read Revelation chapters 4 through 19 and they are to become terrified. That this could fall upon them at any moment. We who are the followers of Jesus Christ, we are to read the same book and we are to know that by the grace of God we have escaped that fate. And instead, what is in store for us, chapters 20, 21, and 22, right? Entrance into the Millennial Kingdom and the New Jerusalem. Let me try to illustrate the doctrine of eminence for you. See if I can help. Last Saturday morning, I had been invited to speak at a local IFCA meeting. And I was to be addressing the topic of raising leadership in a local church. I had agreed some months before to come and speak on that topic. I received something in the mail that said the meetings began, registration at 8.30, the meetings began at 9. So we bundled ourselves off and you know, up and off we went and we were there in plenty of time. I did not know when I was supposed to speak. The meeting goes from 9 to noon. So as far as I was concerned, my uh, presentation was imminent. It, from the moment I arrived there, I needed to be ready to do what? To get up and speak. For the person who planned the program, it would have been nice if he had sent me the program, okay? Because my time to speak was a fixed agenda item at 9.30. You see how the same event from two different perspectives? For one, it is fixed in time and there were things that preceded it. That's the guy who planned the agenda. For the poor speaker who showed up, 
Okay, it was an imminent event. From the moment I stepped onto the church campus, I had to be ready. In the mind of our sovereign and almighty God, the return of Jesus Christ is an absolutely fixed event. And the only thing we clearly know is that there evidently has been 1,900 years worth of things that had to happen first. But for the, from the perspective of humanity, then and now, the judge stands at the door. His return could be right now. Right now. Today is the day of salvation, right? I need to land this airplane. Let me do it this way. Let me take you to Second uh, Peter. Second Peter chapter three. In verse three. The apostle writes there, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. But when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. For 20, 120 years, Mo, or Noah prepared an ark. And his contemporary said, where is the coming judgment? I don't see any rain clouds. And it came upon them in a moment. And it swept them away. Peter goes on to say, for the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire and kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. God does not keep a calendar the way you and I do. But the Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Come like a thief. One of the devastating errors, by the way, of evolution and the denial of a worldwide flood is the denial of the willingness of God to come in a moment's time and destroy everything. The moment of judgment. Behold, the judge stands at the door. Will you take your place with the mockers who says, where is he? It's been 1,900 years. He never came back. I guess he's not coming. Or will you take your place with the people of God who know that indeed Christ stands at the door? Will you walk in the path of righteousness or will you walk in the path of the wicked? Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Let's pray.
Our Father, there is much more to be said in this area, and by Your grace, there's much more that will be said. May You help us to begin to chew on that which we've heard this morning. Our Father, we have been given the deep things of God. Enlarge our faith. Enlarge our understanding. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.